Welcome to 7 Seconds or Less, a podcast about the Phoenix Suns and the NBA. My name is Max McCauley and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host. His name is David Nash. David, how's it going, man? It's going well, Max. It's good to be back again so soon after our little break after a little while with round two of our mailbag with a little extra sprinkled in with some more news starting to filter through as the season gets a little bit closer. But we've always tried to get to everyone's questions when we've done mailbags before, so we've had to extend out to a a two-part series to make sure we touch on everyone's here. We did, yeah. Today we have some questions about Ricky Rubio and the point guards, uh, the wings, and Dario Saric. And of course, (laughs) as always, a random mix of other stuff. Uh, but as you mentioned, we want to dive into some other stuff first. Uh, there was a Aiton at the four controversy on Twitter, David. I don't know if you, I don't know if you caught that. There was. There was. <laughs> yep. Uh, we're also going to briefly discuss the new G League free throw rule that was announced today by Zach Lowe. That's an interesting one. It is. And then we're going to touch a little bit also on a uh, age and height requirement that Mark Stein reported, which is odd, but interesting. Very random. Before we get into any of that, David, how about a little bit of a recap? Yeah, a little bit of news. As you said, the, the season is getting closer, so... It, More things are coming out, both NBA and Suns related. I guess we touched on it last episode, but just to go over it again, uh, Media Day is probably just after this pod comes out and people are listening to it, I believe, on September 30 US time. And the Suns had an entertainment day today, I believe it was called, where we were seeing some pictures flow through online and people commenting on... Uh, possible jerseys and things like that, even though my take on it was I'm pretty sure they were just wearing last season's purple jerseys that happened to look black. Hmm. But yeah, lots of pictures floating through, so people talking about the Suns again, and then they'll shoot off to training camp directly after that media day, Max, and then we get the four preseason games. So I thought I'd run over those very quickly. Uh, We've got Minnesota at home on October 8th, at Sacramento on October 10, at Portland on October 12, and back at home to finish just the four games, the Denver Nuggets on October 14. But it's probably a nice segue to talk about the roster here and and the guys going off to training camp. Not sure if you saw it, Max, but Narense Odiase from Texas Tech signed this week, which Mm. I believe gets us to 19 of a possible 20 roster spots filled for the summer. And It's a a good opportunity to kind of run over the roster here. I'm not going to mention all the names because anyone who's dedicated enough to listen to us in the offseason on this podcast probably knows most of the mainstays for the Suns. But we do have Harper on one two-way contract, which means there's still one slot available for a two-way guy. And with 15 guaranteed contracts already, which is the maximum, as you know, Max, that we can go into the season with, I think that basically means... Owens, Kramer, and Odiase, plus maybe one other that might filter through 
are essentially fighting it out for that last two-way spot, Max. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Give me a random name. Who's going to win the last two-way after training camp? Mm, I'm going to go with the Texas Tech. Wait, there's two Texas Tech guys now, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yep. Owen, Owens. Uh, I think he's the one who fills the biggest need. Yes, I watched a lot of both Owens and Odiase, obviously scouting Jarrett Culver and Texas Tech. Both of them are going to struggle to play in the NBA, but I really don't think Odiase is a, an NBA rotational big. So, mm. yeah, I'm probably with you on that one. They've already got, obviously, a point guard in one slot, so maybe they'll go to a big man. But as you mentioned, up the top, Max, little bit of news filtered through. We had the big one with Aiton's comments on being a born and bred power forward i believe it was when he was asked the question at his charity event if i'm getting that right i think and that comes on top of mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of less discussion earlier in the week or maybe the week before of james jones's throwaway line on the outlet podcast so opinions wildly differed on this one i thought max i saw people thinking that it was nothing i saw people actually supporting him playing the four i think there was people like us who were maybe uh you know accused of overreacting to it but a little bit confused by the statement and and maybe a little cautious about it so i'm going to throw to you why why is it so bad max if we start entertaining the idea of DeAndre Ayton playing power forward next year for the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, so I want to be clear here. I'm not going to get into uh, whether his comments themselves are bad or not. I don't I don't just want to get into it because I don't want to get into a fight over whether or not he means what he's saying. It's just none of us know, Yeah. so it doesn't matter. Uh, but I do think if he did play at the four, it would be bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just kind of because of the way basketball was played in 2019. So I kind of want to break that down a little bit. Uh, I'll start with offense. Uh, Kind of the goal of uh, assembling an NBA team on offense is to have as many skilled players on the floor as you can. Mm -hmm. Uh, Players with skill score points, David. I don't know if you noticed that. (laughs) Uh, There are a lot of extremely skilled six foot two basketball players in the world, but you can only play so many six foot two guys, David. As you go up in height and size, skill becomes rarer and rarer until you get to giant center size people like DeAndre Ayton. So the fact that he's that big and also as skilled as he is, that's the biggest advantage he has offensively. Mm-hmm. It allows you to have five extremely skilled players on the floor at once and not lose size. One of the reasons why Draymond Green at the five is a cheat code for the Warriors. It's the reason why Anthony Davis's team is prosper with him at the five. Because when you have those guys there, you can have all skilled players on the floor. So when you put Aiton on at the, uh, at the four, it's far less likely you'll have as much skill on the floor because you're going to need to find another five who's skilled enough to kind of mimic having another four out there, which it's, it's going to be hard to find. Which we don't have, Max. We don't. I want to just jump don't. in there very quickly. <laughs> there's a lot of, lot of Aaron Baines love yeah. in this conversation, and, and there's no one other than maybe uh, Aaron Baines fan club on Twitter that is more of a fan than Aaron Baines than I am as an Australian. But he's starting to get talked about as, you know, a, a guy that is like David Robinson and, and why Tim Duncan potentially played the four sometimes for the Spurs early on in his career. Aaron Baines is not good enough for what you're discussing here where you would sandwich DeAndre Ayton into a power forward position, but please continue. I love the Twitter account too, guys. Uh, Aaron Baines is a role player. <laughs> He's not a star. And, and I just, last point on offense, it, the problem's even worse with Aiton because you want him near the rim. He's really, really good near the rim. Most fives play near the rim. Uh, so if you play him at the four, you're going to have a hard time finding a five who can also allow him to excel on the interior. Mm-hmm. So that's the offense. Defensively, David, the problem's even worse. <laughs> and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I'm going to name a couple of them. First of all, and this is a simple one, 
Most of the league's fours shoot, David, the stretch four is a thing. So if you have Aiton out there guarding fours, he won't be near the rim to rebound, which is probably the best thing he does defensively. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that's mitigated a bit because you have another five on the floor to rebound, but still, it's, it's not optimal to mitigate one of your best players' best abilities. Uh, second, as much as we like seeing Aiton play perimeter defense, he's, you know, he's shown flashes there. He's a good uh, switch defender in, in small bursts. Yep. I don't think we have a whole lot of evidence he can stick with NBA fours on a consistent basis. Do you want him checking Tobias Harris and Danilo Gallinari all the time? And those are just random fours I picked. There's a lot of fours like that who I think would be uh, difficult for Aiden to stick with. Mm-hmm. Uh, third, if Aiden's playing the four, that means you have two five-sized players on the floor at all times. Uh, teams with multiple initiators like Houston with Westbrook and Harden would love nothing more than just put two different fives at once and pick and rolls over and over and over where Aiden gets killed anyway and you know where most bigs tend to get killed. Uh, and then I'll, I'll just do one more. There's, there's a lot more, David. Uh, but but one, one my, probably my biggest issue with this is I feel like it's kind of giving up on DeAndre Ayton. His peak value is to develop him as a as a five who can not only rim protect and you know be your defensive anchor, but also on offense can be you know play as a skilled player and play with smaller players. It's kind of the cheat code I've been talking about a million times with why Aiton's you know, potential upside is higher than Luka Doncic. Yeah. Because he can kind of be the small ball destroyer by being a you know another smallish defender type guy but also a big guy. And if you're going to play him at the four, you're kind of closing off that ceiling. You're not going to let him get the reps as a rim defender. It's just it's, – it's kind of like – I feel like this is a last resort with DeAndre Ayton. If he doesn't work out as a five, you – you make him a four late in his career, and at least maybe he gives you some offensive value. Mm-hmm. It's not what you go to year two, David. Yep, I totally agree. I would love to fight with you on this one and, and potentially uh, you know, push the opposing view that, that some Suns fans that I've seen on Twitter that support this move, uh, but I just can't do it, Max. I, I agree with everything that you're saying. You know, I tweeted, uh, I think when this came up the first time from James Jones's comments, that the moment you start playing him at the four is the moment that you are admitting that you screwed up yes. the 2018 draft. And I agree with you on that. You would be admitting that you potentially fell for some traits that you thought he was going to have, and now you're trying to make up for them. And when you had you know, the pole position pick in that draft and you are going to start building your team to make up for the flaws in the guy's game that you picked. Yeah, you're admitting failure, as you said. Uh, I love the point that you made about him showing flashes on the perimeter. I think it's actually probably my favorite block of the season is the Jamal Murray one Mm, uh, where he guards him out on the perimeter and he takes him to the free throw line instead of taking him to the rim and DeAndre Ayton gets his hands up because everyone's screaming at him to get his hands up and he blocks the shot. It's Eddie Johnson's commentary on that video, if anyone wants to go back and watch it, where he says, Ayton can guard anyone in the league for about four seconds. And then it gets a lot harder for him if guys start trying to break him down. And I just thought that was perfect for where Ayton is right now. We all get very excited about... You know, the the videos of him guarding LeBron, the videos of him guarding Giannis. Again, they're like four, five, six second clips where he switched on to that guy at the end of the shot clock. And, you know, they did a really good job of putting him in great positions and, and using his size and length. But you can't just start building your entire defensive game plan around that. At least not yet. He's not that fleet of foot. He's not that quick to keep up with, you know, guards on the perimeter. And as you say, he's not... With the way that it's going with power forwards in this league, he's just not skilled enough on the defensive end. It's going to get picked apart if teams are scouting for that every single night. I think the reason that it worked 
is because they flash mob people. Yep. You know, they came out of nowhere with that game plan a couple of times and teams weren't ready for it. If all of a sudden you're starting him at power forward and teams are looking to pick it apart, I think it becomes, you know, a lot worse. But, you know, my notes here, I think you've touched on all of them brilliantly, so I don't really need to go around it too much. You know, optimizing Aiton in the modern NBA is playing him at the five and having four other skilled players around him, as you said. He hasn't got the power forward skills. He can't put the ball on the floor. He can't shoot the three. You know, we're talking about him going into a position that he just didn't show in his rookie year he would be even capable of doing at a high level anyway. And then you lose out all those things at the five, as you said, with him as well. But probably my biggest thing here, and I got picked apart for this quite a bit because it is moving more into the, I guess, mentality side with DeAndre and why he said what he said and whether he meant it. But if I'm not going to comment specifically on the comments and just take the leap that this is where he is right now, I'll do more of what you said. And if they actually start playing him there, I think you're pandering to that mentality where we have yep. talked about all last season and all this off season about how he needs to get tougher. He needs to be more aggressive on both ends. I don't want to see any situation where the Suns kind of pander to their quote unquote star here and say, I guess kind of like the Pelicans did with the Anthony Davis and, and potentially what the Lakers are going to do with him too, because he's in a contract year where they kind of say, yes, Anthony, we're going to play you at the four. We're going to start suboptimal guys at the five next to you, even though everyone in the NBA, including us dum-dums, know that his best position is the five in the NBA. And it's exactly the same with DeAndre Ayton, even more so because he's probably less skilled on the perimeter than Anthony Davis, at least right now, and more dominant around the ring than Anthony Davis right now. So that's all I have to say on it. As I said, I think you touched on most of it, but that's my extra to add in there. There's probably some people that disagree with both of us, but uh, yeah, it's the ones, I guess, that are more in support of him playing the four in any stretches, situationally or not, versus the ones, I guess, that attack that maybe were going a little bit over the top just on the quote from DeAndre, which, you know, maybe that's the case. I'm willing to admit that he's not the greatest interview, or maybe he is the greatest interview in terms of just being <laughs> upfront and honest uh, and, and off the top of his head without thinking... Uh, about what us types might pick apart from what he says, Max. You nailed a great point there, which is that this is my rant was sort of assuming that Aiton develops the skills that we expect him to develop. If he can't shoot, then it's even worse. It doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to say is, yeah, I, I don't want to piss off everybody. So, and in fact, when, when those quotes came out, my only comment was that people need to stop comparing him to the Tim Duncan thing because it doesn't make any sense. It's absurd. Yep. It, it, it breaks my brain. But yeah, it, I think. I don't want to give up on DeAndre. Like, I still think he does have the upside to be better than Luka Doncic. I don't think that's impossible. I think if you make him a four, that's impossible. I think that's what makes me uh, so upset about it. But anyway, should we go ahead and move on, David? We've, we've spent some time on this already. We have. This is a long news section for us, which is a, a bit of a nice change, I suppose. But as you mentioned, Zach Lowe reported that the G League will be trialing the one free throw rule. Uh, I saw a lot of people get mad online about this, Max. I'm not sure where you sit on it. Uh, but how about you explain it a little bit further than what I just did and uh, let me know your opinion on it. Yeah, sure. So the NBA is going to try a new rule in the G League where uh, except for in the last two minutes of the game and in overtime, mm -hmm. players will shoot only one free throw for shooting fouls. So, for example, if it was a two-point shooting foul, the one free throw would be worth two points. Yep. If they were fouled on a three-pointer, it would be worth three points uh, for the free throw. 
Uh, my thoughts, David, I absolutely love it. It's like my favorite idea. Uh, first of all, anything that speeds up the game appeals to me. Uh, if you get rid of the boring parts of the game, especially regular season games, uh, it's great. I hate watching dudes who suck at free throws shoot multiple free throws. It's not entertaining. It, it just It's sort of a waste of my life. I, I value my minutes on this earth, David. Yep. Uh, second, not only do we get fewer free throws, the free throws we do watch will be way more exciting. Imagine like Devin Booker getting fouled with a three-pointer and only one free throw for all accounts for three points. Like, how much more are you invested in that one free throw than you are for a normal free throw? Mm-hmm. It'd, be, it'd be really fun. And then the other thing I think about it that, that makes it great is that it doesn't affect games that much because first of all, if it, it's gonna kind of even out over time for everybody, everyone shoots you know their same percentage for free throws. Yep. So it, it'll even out over time. And then second, they're not gonna do it at the end of games. So you're not going to have shenanigans where people like foul a bad free throw shooter, uh, you know, to try to get the ball back or whatever. It's, it's going to be the exact same at the end. Um, they fixed Hack-A-Shack, so that's not going to be a problem. I don't see a whole lot of downsides to it, David. I just, it seems really fun to me. What do you think? Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with you. I, you know, I'm not, I don't feel strongly either way on it. You know, I, the reason I joked about people getting mad online about it is I think if you look at the statistics, it actually doesn't change much. As you as you said, you know that that's the way that the percentages work. Mm-hmm. You know, guys are still going to be just as good shooting their one free throw, or just as bad shooting their one free throw. So that will kind of even itself out as you go. And I think you know your main point is exactly why they're trialing this is because of you know length of game yep. and slowing things down, or, or in this case, trying to fasten it up. And I applaud the NBA for using the G league in a way that they should use it. And and more sports should do this. You know, I'm not a huge NFL fan, but I see a lot of criticism of the NFL for, you know, not trying new things and, and quite often screwing up the rules of, of what diehard NFL fans love about the game. So, you know, you can use it in the G league, it means absolutely nothing to the NBA right now unless the results from the G League suggest that it's something that they should bring in. And therefore, I don't really see any losers in this. The only losers are the kind of, you know, real deep dive nerds who hate what it then affects in terms of historical statistics and output and things like that. And then I guess, you know, teams and arenas that have, you know, competitions if the opposition missed two free throws and things like that, they're going to have to start to think about uh, outside the box a little bit more on, on how Did I tell that. you, did you see uh, on Twitter what I said my idea for that is? No. When an opposing player misses a free throw that's worth three points, which wouldn't happen a ton... That's free tacos. How much more exciting is that? Not only does the other team not get three points, you get tacos. Perfect. I love it. I love it. But just on the historical standpoint as well, just watching the FIBA World Cup recently, you know, they put in that uh, you even get an assist if one of the free throws gets made by the person that you passed to and was fouled and therefore went to the line, which I've been in support of for a long, long time. Again, something that historical stats people are against and and maybe one reason why that will never happen in the NBA. But I think it's a shame. And if you move to one free throw, uh, you know, it makes even more sense for that rule because if they make the bucket, you get the assist uh, and we would see guys get rewarded a hell of a lot more instead of having to come up with other stats like, you know, possible assists and potential assists that we've got to add on top of guys output like um, you know Devin Booker for instance I think is quite high with the, the bad teams that he's been on and and James Harden would be even more historic in terms of his total assists if they did that in the NBA so David do you think the stats would be were affected when they added a three-point line <laughs> do you think the stats were affected when they got rid of the hand checking 
think the stats were affected when everyone started shooting 53 pointers a game. Like, come on, the stats are always affected by error. Yeah, and matter. we've we've moved the NBA line a couple of times too, Max. But people just compare <laughs> three point percentage to three point percentage historically, anyway. So yeah, I think that's a, a, a stupid thing and probably a good segue into another random stupid bit of news, Max. And that was from Mark Stein reporting today that uh, all te- teams in the preseason must record detail and report to the NBA the ages and heights of all the players on their roster, Max. Yeah, this one's bizarre. Very. I mean, for the fans, it's kind of awesome. I'm, I'm happy we get to know the actual heights and ages of players, I guess. Not really ages. I don't I don't care so much about that. Mm-hmm. I don't there's a whole lot of Buddy Heels hiding out there with, <laughs> with fake ages. And even if there are, are teams going to like pull birth certificates? Or they could just lie to their own team about their age, right? Yeah. I don't know, I don't know how that's going to yeah, work. Yeah, the, word, the uh, word validate was used, I believe, in, in his <laughs> oh, tweet. Really? So, you know, whether you have to bring your passport or birth certificate or, or what, I'm not too sure. <laughs> Hey, what if you don't? Do you, are you banned from playing? <laughs> uh, and the height thing is, I, I think it's silly. I, I kind of like the conspiracy theory they threw this in just because they didn't want to seem like they're targeting Buddy Hill. <laughs> yes. Um, but, I mean, I'm, the, listen, I just said I love a rule before that made it more entertaining. Uh, and I think that, you know, when they're going to, when the height day comes out and we get to learn the heights of all the players, that's going to be an entertaining day, David. Yeah, I saw a lot of jokes that uh, Nikola Jokic was happy that they didn't add weight as a, <laughs> as a requirement, uh, which I thought was Love quite it. funny. But, you know, I, I've been on this for a while. Consistency with, with guys and, and knowing heights is something that really annoys me. It actually annoys me come draft time because you don't get accurate reports and some guys just haven't even ever had a measurement taken of them because they always opt out. So, you know, I've always said if you nominate for the draft, you should have to report to the combine and have one central place taking wingspan, height, etc. And obviously that may change on guys that get drafted and, and continue to grow. Devin Booker, I believe, was one of those, Max. But We'll find out can- soon, won't we? Exactly, and if you're going to add it every year after that, then you you get an up-to-date log of these guys anyway. So I wish they'd go the extra mile and do that, but this is a a nice start. It'll be interesting to see what random things we get out. You know, will Kevin Durant manage to duck down and admit that he's, uh, or not admit that he's seven foot like he seems to always be ducking, Max? I'm sure. So I think the reason why he said he doesn't want to be seven foot is, is for the ladies. I don't think the ladies are going to pay attention to NBA height day. So I think Kevin Durant's going to be okay. I'm not too worried about him. Yeah, we, we won't snitch on you, Kevin. I promise. <laughs> All right, let's move into our listener questions. Uh, we're going to start with Rubio and the point guards. Yep. Uh, first question comes from at Aviator in Flight. Alex Viro or Vero? I don't know. Alex, let me know how I pronounce your last name. I'm going with Vero. Vero? Okay. We'll see. You can pronounce it to me on Twitter via text. <laughs> How do you see the point guard rotation unfolding behind Ricky Rubio this season from beginning to end, David? I love both of the questions we got on Ricky Rubio, and we'll get to the other one in a minute as well. But I love them because they're both tied to this staggering point that I keep finding a way to bring up here, Max. Because my point on on the rotation, which we did discuss in the... Uh, Rubio or point guard specific episode a little while ago, which if anyone listening hasn't heard and is interested, can go back and check that one out. But you've got 96 minutes at both guard positions here, Max. I reckon Booker will play around 34. Uh, Rubio uh, has historically played around 30, so that's 64. 
minus 96. You end up with about 32 minutes at both guard spots, not just backup point guard here. And uh, if the 14 minutes that Booker doesn't play, I would love to see Rubio, you know, essentially be the backup point guard uh, in those minutes. And, and, you know, Tyler Johnson gets around 20. So you're really only looking at kind of 12 minutes that's left over from a, you know, basic three guard rotation, which I've kind of been saying all along is what I expect or, or maybe what I hope a little bit more. So it's an interesting question in that I'm not sure whether we kind of have backup minutes at the point guard, particularly if you go with both Booker and Rubio being your primary guys. There's really only kind of chump change left over for guys like Ty Jerome and the the numerous other young point guards that are currently on the roster and we're not sure who's going to stick around, Max. Yeah, I do think as long as they're healthy, the Rubio-Booker stagger thing is going to be what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, I could see them trying to have every single minute of the game have, uh, you know, two of Rubio, Tyler, and Booker in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, it does depend a lot on where Ty Jerome is. Uh, if he's ready to start the season or if it takes him a while to get ready or if he's never ready, that's obviously going to have a big impact. Mm-hmm. I could see them signing somebody at some point, if especially if there's an injury or if Ty Jerome just isn't able to play at all. Good point. Uh, I, I, my guess, if I have to guess how it's going to play out over the season, I think Ty Jerome gets more and more involved as we go on. It becomes kind of like a four guard sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, if we go to Tank Town again, we get some Jalen McHugh uh, <laughs> minutes if, if we're really uh, out of the playoff race. But as long as they're reasonably competitive and at least pretending they're competitive, I think it'll be mostly the three big names, maybe a little bit Jerome mixed yeah. in. Uh, go ahead. I think that's a great point by you, and I think Alex kind of alluded to it in his question why we threw it in there is – you know, he said for the whole season. So there are yep. things that, that might happen. We're not just talking night one here. Injuries is definitely one of them, which you keep bringing up. And I think it's worth reminding because uh, we always go into these predictions, assuming health and everything being 100%. But the NBA season throws up, as we saw last season, some some random curveballs. Yeah, and David, I mean, what, what are the odds that Rubio Booker and Tyler Johnson go through the entire season without any of them missing like a week? Well, the fact that all of them, you know, don't have the greatest records exactly. injury-wise anyway means, you know, the chances are basically zero. So, yep. yeah, I think that's a great point. If Ty Jerome, who you're very high on, uh, does come into the season looking good or at least, you know, in the the 12 minutes a game or so that he can get himself, he does look like he's an NBA guard early on. That's where things open up where, you know, you look at Tyler Johnson's expiring contract to maybe make a big splash at another position. So, yeah, I think your points are perfect in that both injury and Ty Jerome are the two things to really watch here for how the position might progress as the year goes on. I guess the third thing to watch is just how bad or good the Suns are because then you might end up with more Akobo or Carter or mm. Jalen LeCue minutes, mm. as you said. But we'll get into that a little bit later with a question, I think. But hopefully that's something we avoid for the majority of the season, Max. I certainly hope so. And the other nice thing is we should get some clarity on this, maybe even the preseason, but certainly early on in the season with Ty Jerome because yep. it's going to be very obvious very quickly whether Ty Jerome is going to be helpful right away. Very obvious. Yeah, it wouldn't have said everything, but this is the the type of situation where both Cam and Ty not playing in Summer League just has us completely in the dark at the moment. That's very true. Uh, Next question on Rubio, we have at Purple Orange, Tyler Brown. Given Rubio's performance in the World Cup this summer where he showed creativity and leadership, 
Is it possible that Monty Williams will carve a bigger than expected role for him? And should he have Rubio freestyle a little more, David? I don't think his role changed based on the World Cup or his responsibility, I guess, while he's on the court is what the question is alluding to there. But, you know, they gave him three years, 51 million guaranteed. So a big commitment to run this team. So, you know, you would hope that they're pretty trusting in him coming in and playing his role. But what I do hope is that I think it made him think a little bit more about lineups because he was very good running that team with the ball in his hands a lot. Obviously, when you've got a guy like Devin Booker, uh, you know, him freestyling, as the question puts it, is, is a lot harder to do because Booker becomes the number one guy. But again, hate to do it. This is where you get into staggering, play Rubio a fair bit of his time without Devin Booker, you know, give him a role threat like he had on that Spanish team in Marcus Gasol and give him four shooters. You know, Baines can be, a, you know, a version of FIBA World Cup Marcus Gasol, maybe not as good in some areas, but certainly as a, hopefully as a shooter and a role threat, he can, you know, mimic that. And, you know, I think that's where you, you get into a situation where you, yeah, you do throw him the ball and go, yeah, freestyle a little bit. I think Monty's already mentioned a couple of times, you know, letting him be an extension of the coach out on the floor, which is what you, you know, sign a veteran point guard like and, and kind of letting him go a little bit and call his own plays and things. So if that's what the question is, is alluding to in terms of freestyling, Max, yeah, I think that maybe the World Cup did open that up a little bit or maybe they already are going in to the signing thinking that way. What do you think? Yeah, I'm definitely more of the latter on this one. I kind of think that's what they saw in Rubio. I, I, we've made the point before that Utah, at least in our opinion, sort of held him back a little bit. Didn't let him create, yeah. As yeah, much. exactly. They didn't. That wasn't really their idea on Rubio. They wanted him to play a more conservative game. I think mm-hmm. they're going to have a little more opened up, let Ruby Rubio show a little bit. Yeah. I think that people. I, I caution everyone not to put too much stock in the in the World Cup thing. It's certainly not bad. It's it's very good that Rubio played some of the best basketball of his career this summer. But the World Cup FIBA basketball is very very different. From NBA basketball, yes, uh, I think Tim Duncan, who we referenced earlier, once once famously was quoted saying FIBA sucks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's also a pretty small sample size, so I don't want to like too overreact to it. I think it's you know, you know, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing, but I think that you know, d- don't put too much stock in it. But overall, I already expected it to go that way. This can't hurt. It can only help. I expect to see uh, a lot of Ricky Rubio doing a lot of things. This, this season, and I think, you know, it, it may surprise people who expect him to be uh, Utah Ricky Rubio all over again. Yeah, I think, I, I'm glad you touched on that. I think they Utah didn't let him create as much, and I think from all reports, uh, and again, we'll start to see this hopefully in the preseason with Ricky if he plays a little bit, you know, we're going to start to see him really run the team, push the ball. It's the other question with Monty that we, you know, answered last mailbag in terms of pace and how fast we think that's going to be something for everyone to watch but yeah I think you made you made a good point there with the World Cup don't overreact to that I still think the biggest positive from that is that he remained healthy throughout and didn't get hurt and we're getting a a healthy hopefully somewhat refreshed Ricky Rubio coming into training and confident right he's got to be feeling confident exactly and that's the biggest thing at least he didn't shoot like absolute crap and play really badly or get injured that would be obviously uh, worse uh, and and be you know something more to think about than just how well he played in the World Cup because yeah I think we can't overreact too much I, I need to see it on an NBA floor uh, more than the World Cup Max yep 
Uh, and, you know, listen, MVP of the World Cup, David. I know you have some qualms with that. You're a bit of a hater of that, but uh, we're, we're going to hang it. Maybe, you know, we're the Phoenix Suns. We should probably hang that in the Raptors. <laughs> was it Chris Coffle, wasn't it? He said, you know, similar free agent signing that became an MVP, uh, alluding to, to Steve Nash going <laughs> going two-time after coming back to Phoenix. But, yeah, let, let's be hopeful and, and hope that it translates over to the NBA floor, but we definitely need to see it, Max. All right, Dave, I think we're ready to move on to the wings and Dario Saric. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a forward section here. I've kind of put the four questions into two uh, different sections here because they, they're kind of similar. So I'll, I'll go with the stuff on Saric first. Dom Tesorio, hopefully I didn't uh, butcher that, Dom, but he said, is Saric a viable long-term option at four next to Aiton and Booker? And then another favorite of ours, Jared Huggins, followed up with what happens to Dario Saric, more likely to be traded, extended, or lost for nothing after the season, Max. So let's start with Dom here. I thought it was an interesting question from him. He's a very smart individual. You should definitely follow him on Twitter if you're not already listeners. But I know he has some thoughts on this himself. But, you know, I actually think it's got more to do with how Aiton and Booker are next season more so than what Sharit shows in terms of his overall game of whether he would be a fit at the four long term. What do you think? Well, yeah, if Aiton's our new four, then of course he's not a fit at the four. We already have Aiton. <laughs> uh, my, my guess is probably not. Uh, as you said, it, it depends a lot on Aiton's offensive improvement. It's the, the biggest factor here. Yeah. But I, I want to kind of focus on something else. We've talked a lot about that. I want to talk about whether we can see some real improvement from Dario this season Mm -hmm. Uh, as you and I both talked about he hasn't really been in the best shape possible the past couple years at least it doesn't seem like it to our eye Uh, he's still a relatively young player if he gets into you know really really good shape improves significantly defensively really more just out of your pure athleticism and being in shape than anything else that would help a lot because I think he's already a pretty damn good offensive fit he can shoot he can pass uh, I think it was, I can't remember who it was now. Maybe it was uh, Cole and Sam on there. I, I don't remember who it was. Oh, no, sorry. It was Nate Duncan when he had uh, when he had Mike on, Mike Schwartz. Yep. Uh, talking about how the, the Suns have passers now. Yes. Like, Dario's charge can pass. And I think that makes it a really, really nice offensive fit, especially if Aiden improves on the passing. You got Rubio and you got Booker out there. Like, you're really starting to have a real passing team. So offensively, I think it's great. It really should depend on whether Aiton can become a defensive anchor and then whether, uh, you know, Sharj can improve his own defense enough to make it viable. Yeah, exactly. I think Suns fans are, are really going to quickly appreciate his IQ out on the floor and his passing, uh, opening DeAndre Aiton up, hopefully a bit of, you know, big-to-big stuff, high-low stuff. He is a legitimate 6'10", which means he's a, you know, perfect kind of power forward placeholder you know, starter, rotational big, if you want to put it that way, at power forward. Maybe he's not the guy that finishes games and is in your best kind of five lineup, but, you know, you still see a lot of NBA teams start a more traditional power forward Mm. at the starter games, and I think he can be that. A lot of it does depend on, you know, the strides that Aiton makes defensively of whether he is a bit more of a long-term fit. But, yeah, as you say, contract year. Actually saw a picture of him finally... Uh, in a Suns jersey today, didn't get, he was sitting down, so couldn't see just how trim and terrific he was looking, Max, but, you know, hopefully comes into the season fit. Uh, I didn't mention it before when we're talking about DeAndre Ayton, but I absolutely loved that he said his number one thing he was working on in the offseason was cardio, so, you know, uh, you know, he's going to come in fit. Uh, Most guys who are are fighting for their next big contract 
Uh, this is the second contract time for Dario. So you know, hopefully he shoots the ball well, which will open up a lot. And then, yeah, the passing, as you said, is the big thing for me, particularly if they start Mikhail or I did notice Kelly Oubre said he wanted to create for others a little bit more this season, and that's what he's been working off. You you might have you know five legitimate pa- passes on the floor with Rubio, Booker, one of Bridges, Ubre, Sharich, and DeAndre Ayton, who's sh- shown some flashes there. So that's the big thing. We're going to have hopefully a very fast moving, uh, good passing team uh, in that starting unit, which is the thing to look out for with Dario. Uh, but moving on to Jared's question, you know he can be extended prior to October thirty one. I'm pretty confident that that's not going to happen. We have spoken about that before. But what's your prediction here, Max, in terms of what will happen at the end of the season? Will he be traded by then? Will he be extended as a restricted free agent? Or would we potentially just lose him for nothing? Yeah, I ranked it from least to most likely. Um, I agree with you. Extended is definitely the least likely. It would have to be him just like kicking ass in training camp. Mm-hmm. And just looking at a whole different player. Then maybe it happens. But, uh, yeah, don't expect it. Uh, I have traded the, the next least likely. Just trades are hard to predict. Yep. <laughs> they don't usually happen. Uh, the last two are close. Ultimately, I said I didn't think uh, that he's a long-term fit. I don't think the Suns will think that either. Um, it, it's tough, though. I mean, it's going to be hard for them, especially if Cam Johnson doesn't work out, to not keep Dario around just from a, you know, a saving face perspective. Mm-hmm. That trade is a total disaster. And also, if your boy Culver's good, that could be really bad. <laughs> um, but uh, it's tough. I think ultimately, I'd say they the most likely thing that happens is they let him go in free agency. Um, but, you know, listen, I think it's really close. It's hard to predict at this point. It's a good question. Yeah, I think, you know, hard to predict trades, but he could be an interesting trade piece at the deadline for, you know, a playoff team. Yeah. You wouldn't get a, a hell of a lot for him, but someone might come knocking if... if you know, it's not looking like he's a long-term piece. It hasn't worked out that well for the Suns. Maybe that's how they'll save face on that trade is by picking up a second-round pick or something for him to, to a playoff contender. But, yeah, like last episode, as you mentioned, if they do lose him for nothing, uh, like with the Aiton discussion, I think it was when we brought it up last episode, um, you know, you're going to really have to question that trade. Um, you know, this, the season not looking so good, Saric, Saric not looking so good. Uh, it, it won't be good for the outlook on that trade long term, particularly as you mentioned, if Cam Johnson isn't looking great either. So, yeah, I could see him coming back as a restricted free agent in that ten to twelve million dollar range. But this season is is going to be the the one to watch with him on on whether that's actually a smart move for the Suns. Or yeah, that. it's it's going to be tough. I mean. I think so, and then and that's kind of funny, right? So if Cam Johnson like really exceeds expectations, and we'll get to a later question about all rookie teams, but if Cam's awesome, he's like a first team all rookie, like makes it a lot easier for them to move on from uh, Dario, right? <laughs> it does. They, you know, they can almost just justify that they were going to take him at six anyway, so they they got a, a starting power forward and the guy that they wanted all along. As we see, teams tend to filter out through the the media that they they always get their guy at their pick that they would have taken much higher in the draft anyway. But moving on to the other forwards here, Suns and Ducks, uh, Jimbo Slice said, Ubre versus Mikhail, do they fit long-term? We've discussed that quite a bit, but there's some interesting stuff there to maybe discuss. And at Mike S. Orlo said, who will have a better 1920 season, Aiton or Bridges? And what's a meaningful stride for Bridges this season look like? I just wanted to touch on the eight playoff teams that finished 
the season, uh, you know, as the last eight teams in 1819, Max. It was Toronto, Golden State, Milwaukee, Portland, Boston, Philly, Houston, and Denver. The forwards for those teams, Max. Siakam and Leonard, two of Green, Iggy, KD for the Warriors. Giannis and Chris Middleton for Milwaukee. Amino and Harkless for Portland, neither of which are on Portland next season. Boston, Tatum and Brown. Philadelphia, Harris and Butler. Houston, Tucker and probably Harden, if you look at the top uh, playoff minutes is what we're looking here. The, The five guys that played the most minutes come playoff time. And Denver, Millsap, and probably Torrey Craig actually got into the rotation in the playoffs. So my point there is that, you know, the Suns are a long way off the playoffs, but I think we get too bogged down and caught up sometimes in fake starters starting at power forward and things. When it came to guys playing the majority of the minutes in meaningful playoff games, they were all the forwards for the the best eight teams, I suppose, towards the end of the NBA season. So I don't see any reason why, if they improve... Ubre and Mikhail can't be coexisting on a very good Suns team, Max. Totally agree. I'm not worried about that at all. I mean, so positionally, I don't worry about it. You need multiple wings. You need multiple guys who could defend uh, those, you know, from the two to the four positions, basically. Yep. Uh, so totally fine with that. I like Mikhail's fit better just because, um, you know, he, he's more fungible in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Kelly Ubre needs to improve you know, what he says he's improving, which is great, which is his passing. And also his defensive consistency to be more of like a glue guy type player. We've said it a million times. Kelly Oubre is sort of like a, you need to improve your role player skills or need to become a star. Because right now you're kind of like a guy who plays like a star who's not a star. Yeah. And I trust I trust Mikhail more in those things, you know, role player things, as you mentioned, than I do Kelly right now. Yeah, he's already better at them um, and projects to get better at them. And he was really good at them in college. Uh, so let's do. I'll go ahead and transition to sort of the next question then on DeAndre Ayton versus Mikel Bridges, who has a better season, and also what I consider to be a, a meaningful stride. Mm-hmm. I'll start with the uh, Mikel Bridges meaningful stride. I think it's a little easier. Uh, really, for me, it's just about Mikel being more consistent across the board. Yeah, especially as a three-point shooter, that's the biggest thing. You want him to be in the thirty-seven percent plus range rather than what whatever he was thirty-three, thirty-four. I don't, I don't remember, but something like that. Yeah. Um, and also just very inconsistent. Like that, that, that 33 came from, you know, games where he was great and games where he missed every three. Uh, you also want to see him just have no defensive lapses whatsoever or very few. Mm-hmm. He's already pretty good in that area, but you want it to be basically none. You want him to show he's going to be, at the very least, a very solid 3 and D player. Uh, as far as Aiton versus Bridges, it's an interesting question. Uh, I'll go with Aiton slightly. I think most people, after the season's over, will consider Aiton to have had a much better season because the highs will be very high. Yep. Um, he'll have dominant offensive games and such like that. I think the lows will be lower than Bridges' lows. So I think ultimately they'll be pretty close in overall impact. But I'd go with uh, uh, with DeAndre Aiton having a better season. What do you think? It's, a, it's an interesting question. Yeah, I've kind of categorized it as he'll have the biggest season than Mikhail, but mm-hmm. you know, with how the front office is shaping up here and, and what seems to be their belief in Booker and Aiton as a one-two punch, I think you could argue that you know a Bridges meaningful stride might actually be more important to the team overall because with this plan that the front office have, you know, if Booker Aiton work out, and you know, we still need to see that. So obviously, you could argue that Aiton's stride still plays you know a bigger part, but. You need a third guy. You know, we see it with a lot of these teams. You know, there's big threes in the NBA for a reason. It's very hard to have a very good team just built around two 
good guys uh, in the NBA. We, we might see that this year with uh, the Clippers, with Kawhi and Paul George. But, you know, what is that stride from Mikhail and, and why does it mean so much? You know, it does he return to a, you know, plus 38% shooter from three like we all thought he was going to be? Is he elite, an elite defender that doesn't take any possessions off? As you said, you know, I kind of need him to, you know, be the one that's often put on closes at the end of games and actually shutting them down. You know, all the flashes in his rookie season are great, but we did see him kind of get bullied going towards the bucket and uh, get put on some closes, but come off the, on the negative end of things in his rookie season. And then, you know, does he flash some passing and slashing, you know, and kind of those other scoring aspects to his game that aren't just, you know, a deadly three-point shooter, which hopefully we see. We definitely need to see that. But, you know, you look at, uh, you know, three guys on, on a really good playoff team, you know, what's a third guy need to look like Max, probably a, you know, reliable 13 to 15 points per game type guy is kind of what you need if you've already got Booker and Aiton being, you know, your, your dominant scorers. And that's what we kind of need to see from Mikhail this year, I think, to, to kind of feel really comfortable about this core and, and as comfortable as the Suns front office seem to be, I suppose. I don't know if that's a fake confidence right now, but they seem to be all in on this core. Yeah, if I were a front office, I would always seem all in on my core no matter what. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to tell, isn't it? Yeah. I think that might be it for the first section, though, David. Are you ready for Did You Know? I am. Are you ready for Did You Know, Max? That is the question. I've heard, I've, I've heard you. You haven't told me the questions. You would never do that. But you have told me that there's a special sort of thing going on here so let's see there is well max just like you and i i'm sure everyone listening is hoping the suns can increase the win total this year by at least 10 wins but did you know the phoenix suns in their 50 plus year history have seven season turnarounds with 10 or more wins from the previous season that pesky number seven just keeps finding a way to come up on our <laughs> episodes, Max. While I was sitting around this week wondering how many wins last year's team was capable of if certain things didn't go horribly wrong, I thought I'd take a look at our most successful leaps in franchise history. First test, Max, what do you think is the biggest leap in total wins from one season to the next in Phoenix history? Mike, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is the Nash season when we signed Nash and uh, he won the MVP. You might be onto something there. It was 33 wins and actually from a time that most people listening will have been a fan of the team. The 03-04 season to the 04-05 season, as you just said. I'll run through the leaderboard real quick before focusing on one of the seasons, which I might give you a chance to decide, Max. <laughs> so there's 33 wins from 03, 04 to 04, 05, where the Suns went from 29 to 62 in the win column. Next in line is a 27 win increase from 87 to 88, going from 28 wins all the way to 55 and a conference finals loss. Then comes 23 win jumps from the inaugural 68 to 69 seasons and also the more recent 12, 13 to 13, 14, 2, I believe. 16 wins comes in at fifth on the leaderboard, Max. It was the 96, 97 season over to the 97, 98 season, where Phoenix went from 40 wins to 56, but still lost in the first round of the playoffs in both seasons. So that 16 win jump was pretty meaningless. Next up is a 15 win leap from 76, 77 to 77-78, where Phoenix went from 34 to 49 wins to make the playoffs. 
And finally, a measly 10 win increase comes in at 7th on the leaderboard of double digit jumps. And that was from 32 to 42 in 74 and 75, where the Suns lost in the finals for the first of two times in our history. Now, Max, the three most recent jumps I mentioned are the only ones that occurred during our fandom, and I suspect for most of our listeners too. Shout out to anyone that listens to us and is also old enough to remember the 87 to 88 jump or the 76 to 7712. Tweet at me or comment on the pod where you're listening if that's you. But with that in mind, Max, and the fact you know there's got to be a few more questions coming your way, I'm going to give you a chance to choose your own adventure here or maybe choose your own torture as you maybe think sometimes after did you know but i want you to tell me <laughs> first which famous phoenix sun has a connection to all three of these choices and then choose which one you want to do a bit more of a deep dive on including some tests for you so we have the 16 win jump from 96 to 97 the 33 win jump from 03 to 04 or the 23 win jump from 12 to 13. Max, can you tell me which player with the link to all three choices and then choose which door you want to go through? Well, I think it's Nash. She was on the team on the at least the edges of all those seasons or in the middle of them. You are right on the money, Max. It was Steve Nash. So which jump do you want to go with? I want to go with the uh, the MVP season, the one in the middle there, 03, 04 to 04, 05. I thought you might choose that one. The 03, 04 to 04, 05 leap where Phoenix went from 29 wins to 62 wins. This was the Steve Nash leap where he signed with the Phoenix Suns in between these seasons for six years and over $65 million. Some questions, Max. In the disastrous 03-04 season, Marbury and Hardaway only played 34 games each. I want you to tell me which five players started the most games for the Suns in that 29-win season. Oh my god. Uh, I mean, Amari was in the team. 53 for him. He was third most. Uh, Marion? He was the leader with 79. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> Why don't you just tell me, David? <laughs> Joe Johnson, second with 77. Ah, I didn't realize we really traded for him, man. And yeah, your memory gets fuzzy. Two, two very funny ones. Leandro Barbosa was fourth with 46. Okay. So that maybe explains why we had 29 wins that season, as yeah. much as I love Leandro. I don't love him, but go on. And Jake Voskel, 43 starts for the Phoenix Suns in that season. Now to the more fun season the year after. The Suns only dropped two games on their way to the West Conference Finals. Can you tell me which two teams they beat in the first and second rounds, Max? Yeah, I think so. So I think they beat the Grizzlies in the first round. Swept them, full zip. Swept them, yep. And then they beat the Dallas Mavericks. That's That's the team Joe Johnson got hurt against. I was at that game. It still hurts me. And the team they stole Steve Nash from, they beat them 4-2. Nash averaged 15.5 points and 11.5 assists during that season. And whilst assists hovered around the same at 11.3 in the playoffs, Max, what would you guess his points per game went up to in the playoffs that season? 
Oh, they were definitely much higher. He was he was really really damn good uh, as a scorer. I think that was the uh, was that the forty eight point game season against the Mavericks, or was that the next one? Ooh, you've got me on the spot there. I'm not actually sure. I'm gonna. Oh, the tables are turned. The tables have turned. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'm I'm gonna take a guess just off the back of this points per game and say it was this season, but I have absolutely no idea. I think it was. I think the Dallas Mavericks strategy was to make him a score, and he scored 48. They lost that game. And then game six, he had that triple-double. It was insane. People don't realize how ridiculous his stats were. Yep. Uh, I'm rambling here. Definitely higher. I would say that he probably averaged like 28. Not quite that high. It skyrocketed to 23.9 from 15.5 on the back of six and a half more shot attempts and shooting 52% overall over the entire... I was probably thinking of his points per game average in the Dallas series. Yeah, there you go. So, Max, a small fun fact to end this bit. Phoenix were plus 10,000 odds to win the title going into that 04-05 season. Hmm. Right now, we're around plus 50,000 from what I could find. But those (laughs) 04-05 odds were actually tied for the sixth worst odds in the entire NBA at the time. Not bad for a team that made the final four max. Yeah, no, not at all. And to tie up the loose end of the Nash connection to the other two choices that you had, Max, in the 96, 97 to 97, 98 leap, where Phoenix went from 40 to 56 wins, this was Steve Nash's rookie to sophomore seasons in the NBA and his first stint in Phoenix before he was traded to Dallas for a pick that landed none other than Sean Marion. And the 12-13 to 13-14, where we went from 25 to 48, these were the first two seasons in the Valley without Nash for over eight years and also his last two years in the NBA with the Los Angeles Lakers, Max. Now, to wrap this one up, I also had to have a quick look at things going the other way and what the biggest drop-offs were in Suns history. Want to take a guess at that one? The largest from season to season, Max? Uh, now nah, you know I did by choosing your own eventuality. You go ahead and give it to me. <laughs> it was 18 less wins going from 94-95 season to 95-96, mm. where Phoenix dropped from 59 to 41, somehow still making the playoffs after a slow start and firing Paul Westpool as coach. To somewhat depressing news, Max, the next in line with 16, we fell from 14-15 team under Jeff Hornacek that won 39 games to just 23 the year after, and it's obviously been bad ever since. Mm -hmm. The slightly more pleasing news, though, is, of course, that the Suns would have to go... 0 and 82 in the 1920 NBA season to break the biggest drop off from record from season to season for the franchise. Is that pleasing news, David, or is that going to happen? <laughs> so, Max, if I were a betting man, there should be more chance that the Suns post a win total that puts this season among the most improved seasons in the desert and not one of the biggest drop offs. And after that, Huge glass of half-filled positivity, Max. I think we can go on to the rest of our mailbag questions and the rest of the episode. If the Suns go 0-82, I will come on this podcast to declare Donald Mitchell is better than Devin Booker. <laughs> I will go one step further and say that you and I will no longer be doing this pod. That might be the last episode. That's true. I will not be go- <laughs> We will not be going on this podcast. <laughs> this podcast will not exist. Exactly. All right. At Brendan5041832. Six, Brendan Hicks. By the way, this is general NBA. Yep. I probably should have said that before I rattled off all Brendan's numbers. <laughs> uh, in this stacked Western Conference, how many wins will a team need to get into the top eight? 
For context, last year the eighth seeded Clippers needed 48 wins, whereas the uh, eighth seeded Detroit Pistons needed 41. David, what do you think this year? Yeah, shades of that 48 uh, team from the Suns in Did You Know Who Missed the Playoffs. Mm -hmm. I looked at the last five years, 48, 47, 41, 41, and 45 is what it has taken to get you in the eighth seed in the West, that is. So you could argue that, you know, there's probably a solid six or seven teams, maybe eight, uh, and then there's a huge drop-off, which we haven't had in the West uh, at least in recent memory, there's been more of a, a, a solid pack. So I'm going to guess around 45 max. Uh, I'm going to rattle off my top eight here in the West and then throw a question your way and then you can let me know what you think. But I think the Clippers, Houston, Utah, the Lakers, Denver, Portland, and Golden State are probably a solid seven for the playoffs in the West, which leaves a huge pack of the Spurs, OKC, the Kings, Dallas, Memphis, Phoenix, New Orleans, and then Minnesota. So what do you reckon? What's your what's your eighth team or a couple for your eighth team and, and how many wins is it going to take? Yeah, so am I surprised if I answer this question? I, I agree that the Western Conference is stacked and deeper than it has been recently. Yep. But I actually think the deepness might actually suppress the wins to an extent. I think one team will run away with wins. Houston, I've already said, I think they're going to have a lot of regular season wins. Yep. Um, but I think everyone else might be grouped. I see a group around 50 wins being the Clippers, the Lakers, Denver, Utah, maybe Golden State. I, then I see a group around the mid to low 40s, which is, again, maybe Golden State, uh, Portland, the Spurs. And then, as you mentioned, there's a bunch of wild cards, uh, you know, all those other teams, basically every other team in the Western Conference. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think that because of sort of the parity in the West, it's going to end up making the eighth seed lower than expected. I would guess uh, if I'm going to pick a team and pick them that number, I'd probably pick Dallas and I'd probably give them like 42 wins, something like that. Okay, that's interesting. What if we throw very quickly to the East? Because um, I find them very interesting as far as the bottom of the, the playoffs goes. Would you agree Milwaukee, Philly, Boston, Indiana, and probably Toronto are all locks for the East playoffs? Yes, I'm close to throwing Orlando in there, but yes. Okay, let's throw Orlando in there as well, which for me then leaves the Heat, the Nets. Oh, 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 the, I want to throw the Heat in there. I didn't, the Heat are, I think, a, a lock. Too. Yeah, I've got, With health. I've got them in, in that tier as well. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven again. So we've got Brooklyn, Detroit, and Chicago for the last spot. Who are you going? Oh, man. Ugh. It's hard not to say Brooklyn because they have, you know, the Kyrie thing. I, yeah. I think Chicago's going to be really good, David. I love their roster. Yeah. The, I don't know. That's a good one. The East is interesting this year. Yeah, I agree. They've done a good job. I think we alluded to it last episode. Probably, you know, another level to Phoenix in terms of having good young talent and then some good vets around them. So yeah. uh, you've got, you know, Blake's health in Detroit. But yeah, I'd probably lean to the star power, I guess, whether it's Kyrie in Brooklyn or, or Blake in Detroit. Um, you probably have to go Brooklyn there, I suppose. Could this be a year where the eighth seed in the East has actually has a higher win total than the West eighth seed? I don't. Th I don't know how that's happened. That's a that's a great question to throw out, and a, a great way to end that question that we got on this general NBA section, Max. Yeah, great question. Uh, next question, also good from Alex. Again, his last name we're figuring out. Vero Viro, uh, <laughs> Aviator Flight. 
Looking at the 2019 NBA draft class, who do you project making the all-rookie first and second teams? And would it be a bad indicator of the Suns' success if one of the Suns' rookies made it? My answer to the last part of the question is yes. I think it would be a bad indicator, particularly in the first team, uh, if one of the Suns made it, because I just don't expect them to play enough to end up. And, you know, even though it was a rough draft, as I kind of wrote down 10 names for first team and second team here, Max, I struggled to get a Sun in there, particularly if I go off who I think will be picked in the teams, not necessarily who mm-hmm. deserves to get put in the teams, which I think is a slightly different thing as well. So my first team here, I'm not sure if you will disagree with any of them. I've got Zion, Ja Morant, just because he'll score a lot of points and have a lot of opportunity. My guy, Jarrett Culver. Uh, Brandon Clark, your guy, I had to put him in there. Mm. And then my real roughie is Tyler Hero. I reckon with his shooting, he's going to play a lot in Miami, and that would be my yep. uh, rough idea as a first-team all-rookie, Max. No, it makes a lot of sense. I, I organize mine differently. Do you want to do your second team first? I have mine like basically organized into locks, likely, and guys I'd bet on next for both teams. All right, I'll throw to two guys in my second team, Grant Williams and Goga Batatse. Okay. Uh, I think trades for both of those teams will probably open up enough opportunity for mm. both of those guys. Rui Hachimura is my second team version of Ja Morant in the first team. He's just going to have a lot of opportunity and probably score a lot of points. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that he's in New York, no matter how much he plays, RJ Barrett uh, will make the second team. And I've thrown a, again, choose your own adventure, one of Hunter or Reddish for Atlanta, whichever plays better will be in the second team. Or rookie max. Yeah, it makes sense. I'm pretty close to you. Uh, I, I again, I arranged mine. I didn't arrange my team. I arranged locks to make one of the teams likely to make one of the teams, and guys I'd bet on next to make one of the teams. Yep. Uh, locks. I have Zion and Ja and RJ. Yep. If they're not injured, I think they're going to make one of the teams. Uh, likely, I have Culver and Kobe White. Mm-hmm. I, did you mention Kobe? I didn't. I, I again, this kind of ties into Chicago being quite a good team. That's true. It's just hard to see how much he's going to be a piece of a good. Chicago team, and also, also I'm just a little low on him. Um, you know, I, you don't have to position these teams, so uh, I've kind of went away from the point guards other than Ja Morant. Yeah, maybe I should have made him a guy I better next rather than likely, but not a lock. Uh, and then guys better next, you mentioned I think almost all of them. Uh, I mean, I said Clark. Grant Williams, uh, Hunter, Garland, I mentioned. I don't think you mentioned him. I didn't, no. Uh, a lot of opportunity. I think there's a chance he makes it. Uh, Tyler Hero, Rui Hachimura, and then uh, Matisse Heibel, I mentioned. Because I think he'll be playing a pretty important role on a good team. He'll be, he'll be the sexy pick. He'll be the NBA dra- you know, draft Twitter pick. Yes. Playing important minutes for Philly. And also I want to point out that it's, it's not a super tough list to crack, David. No. Uh, so I think that I actually disagree with you on it's a bad whether it's a bad indicator if the Suns, uh, one of their rookies make it. I think I could see Cam or Ty sticking into the second team, even if the Suns are a you know a playoff contender. Mm-hmm. Just because I think if you play a, a, a big role, like a, a decent role on a, a decent team, you could make this team. It's not a very. It's kind of like, the, I mean, this is not a good example for what I'm saying, but it's kind of like the Tyler Eulis, uh, any <laughs> one play rookie of the month, and Marquis Chris made the second team. Like it's kind of like that year where I think there are going to be some silly silly selections on the second team because some of these guys will get injured. Yeah. So it, there's gonna be some like. Not good players on this, so I think that if you know if Cam Johnson is just a good shooter, 
and you know plays every game and hits you know his fair share of threes. There's a chance he just makes it for that. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Just looking at the quality of my second team here, if if he shoots forty percent and and plays fifteen twenty minutes a night, then he can definitely find himself on one of these teams. I guess I just. Uh, as I've been all off season, um, and we will get to it in a question in a minute, is is I'm just low on the rookies playing a lot of minutes right now. Yeah, and we're looking at every rookie too. So like you know, like last season for example, you got Wendell Carter gets hurt, Jaron Jackson gets hurt, people get hurt. Yeah, uh, and you know, we get a fault to just disappears. Like somebody could just disappear from this from this class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you have you know Cam hitting a bunch of threes, like Landry Shamet basically made it on by shooting a bunch of threes. <laughs> yep. So. Who the hell knows? Your man. Yeah, my man. Uh, he deserved it, by the way. I'm not, I'm just, he shoot the first team. <laughs> and Cam will deserve it, too, if he gets on there. I hope so, man. If Cam deserves it, that would be really good for us. Uh, all right, should we move on to the quick hitters, David? Let's do it. I'll, I'll start us off at SteviePF22, Stephen Freeman. Follow him on Twitter if you can find him, guys. He asks, if you could pick any Suns team that made it to the Western Conference Finals or further to win a title... Who would you choose? And he says 2010 team. I'll let you go first on the answer here, Max. I mean, Steven stole my answer. That's my favorite sports <laughs> team of all time. Uh, it felt magical. I remember leaving the arena after game four of the Western Conference Finals thinking we were finally getting a championship. Uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, go listen to the Timelines episode recapping the season. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great. I'm jealous of it. It's a great idea. I love that season more than anything. Uh, yeah, no, I can't disagree with Stephen. What do you think, David? I was tempted to go with, you know, any of the, the seven seconds or less teams, uh, but I'm going to commit blasphemy here on our podcast mm. and actually go with the 92-93 finals team, mm. uh, purely for Charles Barkley. They won the most wins, 62 in franchise history, or at least tied it. Uh, he had 14.4 win shares in that season, which is only behind Stoudemire and Marion, I believe, for Suns history uh, as far as win shares in single seasons goes. He was the MVP in that season, uh, and I think it would go a long way to Barkley getting more respect that he deserves. He had 25.6 points on 52% shooting, 12.2 rebounds, 5.1 assists, 1.6 steals, and the only season, I believe, in Phoenix that he had one block per game as well at power forward. I just think he gets underrated a lot because titles mean everything in those kind of overall discussions, and I would love to gift Charles that title to, to cap off his career, Max. I'll just say I love your answer, and it caused me to change my seven seconds or less question Ooh. Uh, just now on the fly. So we'll see what that means. Uh, next question at djuarte89. This is Daniel. I met Daniel. Very nice guy. Great guy. Uh, he asks, Cam Johnson's over-under minutes per game this season. He also made a crazy high win prediction. I think it's 45. I didn't write it down. I think it was, And yep. he, wants, uh, he wants to come on to brag for a few minutes if it occurs. And all I have to say is, Daniel, if you nail that prediction, you'll deserve to have my place in this podcast, much less come on <laughs> for a guest segment. So uh, that's all I have to say about that. Uh, I'd put his over-under for season-long MPG at 13.5. Uh, I think he'll start lower than that and progress over the season to higher than that. Uh, I still project the Suns not to be a playoff team, so it'll probably be very high at the end, which will push that up to 13.5. Probably when they're competitive, it's more like you know, 10, 9 or 10. Yeah. What do you think, David? Yeah, I kind of went a different way. I'm, I'm really leaning and putting all my chips here in on the rookies not playing to start the season. This question reminded me of, of your recent appearance on the Timeline 
podcast, actually, Max, with, I think it was a, an Okobo over-under, and you were all surprised, looking back on it, that he played over 18 minutes mm. per game. But the caveat there was that he only played 53 games. So when he played, he played a lot. And when he didn't play, yep. uh, you know, he obviously didn't play at all. So I think it's going to be similar to Cam. I could see him being, you know, over 15 minutes a game as far as when you look at his minutes per game at the end of the season. But I think a lot of DMPs on top of that, particularly to start the season or maybe when he's in a bit of a shooting slump. So that's my answer for the very simple question. Yeah, it makes sense. I would say it's a little more of a negative outlook because if you go from not playing at all to playing a ton, it probably means the team's bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, the team's good. It's a little more of an integration in. But hey, listen, there's a lot of track record to say the team is bad, David. <laughs> exactly. I'm <laughs> doubling down on, on that one. Uh, third question here, Big Bird 1182 otherwise known as Brad Williams on Twitter. He asks, and this one's been in the news a little bit this week with the Suns teasing their orange theme, but if you could bring back any uniform slash jersey what would it be max before a couple of years ago i would have said the 90s sunburst for sure they're my favorite jersey growing up in forever mm-hmm. still might be the answer but i gotta say i love when they brought back those classic 70s whites a couple of seasons ago i thought they looked great yes they look so much better than our normal whites so my answer is gonna be i'm gonna cheat and say that i want the whites to be the classics and i want our purple and alternate jerseys which are black to be the 90s sunburst yeah uh, we have got the exact same answer after not talking about this, and we need to f- wait. Really, we need to fight more, Max. We need to fight more. I've got it right in front of me. The obvious answer is the sunburst, particularly the black. But shout out to the retro ones that they keep bringing back every now and then. They need to be a permanent fixture. That is my exact notes to the answer to this question, which is pretty much exactly what you said. Although, did you see the mock up of a? orange version of the sunburst that was floating around on twitter max i did not see it what did it look like it looked like an eyesore to begin with but i think if you Mm. highlighted it with uh purple on the sun burst instead of of how it was viewed uh it actually could be pretty good if they brought a a whole orange uh jersey back which the, the sun's uh, Twitter account seems to be alluding to, but we'll probably get let down on that one as we always do with teaser campaigns, Max. Yeah, well, real quick, I want to say the holy grail for me is the sun to come up with an orange jersey that's awesome. I, it's never happened. That's all I really want in my life. Is really, just please, sun. If you figure that out, I'll forgive the 19 win season. <laughs> all right. At Miranda 100 Lease, L E I S, what are the things that you are looking for in the preseason games, David? Yeah, we alluded to this a couple of times before, and, and generally the answer is not much. You know, you know, maybe looking for health and mm. maybe a little bit of chemistry uh, among new players, but, you know, another roster overhaul, another coaching change. Monty also didn't coach Summer League like Igor did the, the previous season, so you kind of hope with these four games to, to see quite a bit, you know, a, a sense of the style that they're going to play, you know, have those answers or or somewhat answered around pace and defense. And, you know, with all the uh, positive or the positivity around Monty Williams higher, I want to see a team playing really hard. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even need to see all the stars playing. Maybe it's all the rookies instead. But with what we're hoping for, with what they got Monty for and, and what Igor, I guess, didn't manage to do last year, I would love to see a team that just comes out and treats these preseason games like their regular season games, diving on loose balls, 
you know, really playing hard. That That's what I want to see from these preseason games. Max. My answer is extremely similar. It's just more consistency on both ends of the floor. I just don't want to see the effort wax and wane. I don't want to see that, oh, look, they look great for five minutes, and then they just suck for the rest of the game. <laughs> yes. I want to see them just look like a real NBA team the whole time. And honestly, that's what I'm looking for the entire year, but it's just going to start in preseason. That's what I wanted to, uh, to start with. Just the whole season long, can we just operate like we're actually an NBA team? That's I have pretty low standards, David. Yeah, I don't want to be looking back on a twelve-game sample size again for hope of why they might be good no. the following season, which is essentially what we've been doing uh, with that small sample with Tyler and Ubre under Eagle last year. But last question for this section: Austin Milner, eleven. It's a great one. If the Suns disappoint again this year, he said the the categorization of that would be under twenty-five wins. Do you question Booker being a true number one option on a good team? It's a hard question to answer without knowing the context. Mm-hmm. Because, I, you know, if Booker's hurt the whole season, then obviously no. Correct. Uh, if Booker's healthy for a lot of it, but the team's just awful around him, then no. If the team's actually pretty solid and he can't get it done, like it's really coming down to him failing at the end of the game, he's not carrying it, then yeah, you know, that's obviously concerning. I don't really see that happening, though. Um, the other part of this question, I'm not sure what you mean by number one option. Like, Offensively, I think it'd be surprising if he doesn't get to the point where he's at least like a co-number one. Yep. Uh, offensively, I, but can he be the best player in a good team? That's tougher. I, I've always thought he kind of projected more as a Kyrie type than a you know LeBron type. He's going to be the, the uh, second banana super scorer guy rather than the, the best player on the entire team that wins a title. Interesting, yeah. But next season, I listen, I'm just looking for him to you know, just take another leap forward and then translate that to winning by having a team around him that actually supports him. And I will say that if he does have a team around him that actually supports him and they still don't win... I will be concerned about him, not really as like an option. I wouldn't phrase it number one option, just kind of as a lead player on a team. Yeah, I think that's a great way to sum it up. Yeah, I think my answer here is I think you have to start to question if they have another really disappointing year and, you know, things like injuries and stuff aren't excuses. You know, we've spoken so much Mm -hmm. about how huge this year is for a lot of those unanswered questions that we've had in the past and, and hoping that things should become clearer moving forward with some solid NBA guys. So, you know, I, I won't I won't go as far as saying it's like the be-all and end-all and a definitive answer here, as you said, but at some point, you know, his talent plus capable NBA guys around him, which they've brought in, you know, it has to equal, you know, a certain floor of wins that you can count on a, a Booker-led team. And that's kind of got to be yeah, you would think are in the 30s somewhere, Max. So yeah. as as the question puts it from Austin, if it was under 25, then yeah, you'd want to be pretty concerned, I think. Yeah, that, and that's fair. Yeah, if it's, I didn't really think about it in the under 25 context. If the team's totally healthy and he's healthy and they don't win more than 25 games, that is definitely not a good sign. <laughs> exactly. All right, I think we're ready to move on to seven seconds or less, David. We are, and we've got one leftover question, and then I believe we're going to throw... 
one each at each other here without notice to wrap it up, Max. Yep, we're going to start with at Jacob Padilla. Padilla. I think it's Padilla. He, he told me this. I can't remember now. I'm pretty sure it's Padilla. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Padilla. Uh, but we love Jacob. Jacob's the best on Twitter. Uh, power rank all the guests you've had on the show, he asked. So, great guy, super nice guy. Asked maybe the most, not nicest question we've ever had. <laughs> yeah, and I think we're both going to dodge this one a little bit. All I'm going to say is that, you know, I love our regular guests, whether it's Callan or Cole or a couple of others that have been on multiple times because I think you know we try to bring a, a different idea to guests uh, with kind of less interview based stuff and more just adding someone into the conversation to talk with us about the sun so happy for feedback from the listeners on that and whether that's something that they uh, like us doing but um, yeah that's my comment on this uh, answer for Jacob uh, dodging it a little bit and, and taking the easy route out but uh, anyone who's been on multiple times is my my favorite guest on the Seven Seconds or Less podcast, Max. For me, every single guest is tied for number one, except for Kellen Olsen, who was last. <laughs> uh, he tried to trick me into thinking there was a problem with Kyler Murray while we were recording uh, live, and that was very mean, Kellen. I didn't like that. So you're last. All right. Uh, we've given him a good cop, bad cop there. I've, I've given him a shout out and you've given him a whack. So that that's perfect for, for Kellen if he's listening. <laughs> but I will allow you to put me on the spot here with question number two, Max. Yes. My, my question that I changed mid-podcast. Yep. After you spoke about the 9293 team with Charles Barkley, I must ask if every Phoenix Suns team in history was put into a tournament, which team would come out on top? Ooh, is the answer different to my previous answer? That's really hard to say. It would be awesome to see the 92-93 team up against, I guess, whichever one we class as the best seven seconds or less. I, I imagine that would be the uh, final matchup there. Yep. Um, I, so and I go ahead and spoil I'll, So I'll give you my answer, which is the, the seven seconds or less team. That would go up against them. I think it's the 0607 team that uh, David Sturm so horribly robbed of a title. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best team in Phoenix Suns history. But I think that, yes, the finals will be between uh, Charles Barkley's 92-93 team and uh, Steve Nash's uh, 0607 team. What do you think, David? Do you Ooh. agree with me that the Steve Nash team would win, or do you take Charles Barkley's team? I think they do. Modern NBA, uh, you know, strength of the, the whole starting unit there. Uh, it's hard not to go with possibly just the best player in the series in Charles Barkley, but I'll, I'll, I won't commit treason twice here on the seven seconds or less podcast. And I'll go with the seven seconds or less Suns team for the answer to that question, Max. <laughs> that is a great way to look at it. Cause I think people don't understand that Charles Barkley, 9293 definitely is the best player in Phoenix Suns history. And I love the Steve Nash MVP seasons, but I don't think it's particularly close David. Nope. He is uh, the best son, the best single season son for sure. Yeah. All right, my question, Max. It is AFL Grand Final Weekend here in Melbourne, perhaps the biggest sporting weekend of the year, especially in my state of Victoria, where they've even given us a day off the day before, which has allowed us to actually record this episode that we're doing right now. But with that theme, and also running over some past Suns teams in Did You Know and Mailbag questions earlier, a two-part question. When do you think the Suns will realistically be back in the playoffs and what is your individual favorite Suns playoff memory, Max? Oh, wow. That's uh, that's tough. So the first one, when it realistic, not this season, I'll say the season after. I think we can realistically expect that because some of the other teams will hopefully die down a little bit. 
you know, Houston will be older, Golden State will be older, blah, blah, blah. That'll be, you know, eight and third year. Booker will be, you know, right in the thick of his next contract. That's when we should expect it. If they're not in the playoffs that year, that means, uh, you know, might be Booker asking out panic time. Yep. Uh, in terms of my favorite Suns playoff memory, that's tough. There's a lot. Uh, it's weird to say that. There are a lot of those, even though it hasn't happened for a long time. <laughs> uh, I think it's Goran Dragic's game because it was so unexpected. The uh, It was, I believe, game three of the Western Conference Semifinals 2010 yep. when he didn't really play a whole lot in the entire playoffs. Not unless I mean the regular season either until then. In the fourth quarter, I believe he scored, it was, I think he scored 25 points in the game, 23 in the fourth quarter. And, and he was scoring in the most ridiculous of ways. And it was just, it was a surreal experience. It was the Spurs who had just yep. owned us as an older brother the whole decade. And somehow we got 3-0 in San Antonio after we were down by 20 points early in that game. It looked like the same thing. Is every year, and somehow Goran Dragic, the whipping boy, the guy who was actually pretty terrible early on in his career, somehow is the one who does that. It was it was a surreal experience. Uh, I don't know if anything like that will ever happen again, David. We've seen it from Booker a couple of times, but that was literally the definition of getting hot and just making yes. some absolutely ridiculous shots. And as you said, uh, the one guy who hadn't been put through the Spurs torture previously and that's sometimes yeah. what it takes mentally is to just throw a guy in who doesn't have those demons hanging over his head and uh yeah what a moment i can't top that one so i think we can uh wrap the episode up right there max all right well that's it for us please as always rate review and subscribe we really appreciate it you can follow me at maximcc11 you can follow david at the four point play david anything else not much. I'm not going to push for reviews anymore. We didn't get any last time, Max. And Aww. all I will say that is if you were thinking of them now, it is a great time because we are committed to reading each and every one of them out individually uh, per episode. Uh, but by the time people hear this episode, Max, and probably likely just after our next episode, there's going to be an actual game that the Phoenix Suns have played in, and that is wild to me that we are only a week or so away from real NBA action again, Max. Yeah, that is odd to think about. I'm not sure I'm mentally prepared yet, David, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get myself there. Uh, but anyway, thanks, guys.